Exodus chapter 20. We begin our look at the actual text of the Ten Commandments this evening. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Give us insight, we pray, into your commands for us. And help us to see, Father, that you save before you command. That your goodness comes first, your grace comes first, your mercy comes first, your love comes first. And yet that goodness, grace, mercy, and love take the shape of a law that tells us what to do and how to live. Father, give us a right understanding of the law. Give us a right understanding of the Lord of the law. Yourself, Yahweh God, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Help us to live as free people through the grace of your law, we pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Well, there's a pattern here, and we're going to look at that pattern tonight. The pattern is that the first five commandments all give a reason for their commandment, or for that commandment, and the second five do not have a reason annexed. So that's the pattern. And we're specifically going to look tonight at the reason annexed to the first commandment. This reason in violation of the pattern doesn't come after the command. It comes before the command and thus stands over all ten commandments as the reason why we should keep them all. The ultimate point, gospel precedes law. Indicative precedes imperative. God's saving work precedes God's demands on 
us. So notice the pattern with me. We have the first commandment in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The reason for that commandment, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Second commandment, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. Reason, verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Third commandment, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Reason, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Fourth commandment, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Reason, verse 9, 10, and 11, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And then the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. But there's no reason with the sixth commandment. It doesn't say you shall not murder because I made man in my image. It doesn't say you shall not commit adultery because my son is a faithful husband. It doesn't say you shall not steal because I created property. It doesn't say you shall not bear false witness because I am the truth. It does not say you shall not covet your neighbor's house because I am content. The first five commands all contain a direct statement about the character of God. And that direct statement about the character of God is the reason for the command. One wag pointed out, if you're going to tell a bunch of Bronze Age tribesmen that they have to give their slaves a day off every, every Saturday, if you're going to tell them that they have to watch their language and aren't allowed minced oaths, if you're going to tell them not to keep images of gods, you better have a good reason. Well, God has a good reason, and he's not shy about sharing that reason. The first five commandments that relate to our duty to God, to superiors, all have a reason given along with the commandment. And we'll look at those reasons in detail in the weeks to come. But for now, we want to see that it's wrong to think of the Ten Commandments merely as a list of do's and don'ts. The first half, the first five commandments, also contain overtly theological statements about what God has done for us and who he is in himself. So those reason commandments two to five all give reasons relating to the jealousy of God or the passion of God for his name or the fact that God created in six days and rested the seventh day. In other words, what's the point? The pattern is that every command is theologically driven. All ten commandments are rooted in the character of God. All ten commandments are rooted in what God has done for his people. And the first half of the commandments make that explicit by saying in so many words, obey me because here's what I've done. I created. I am jealous. I brought you out of Egypt. But the pattern is shifted in this first commandment because the reason comes before the command. That is, even the Ten Commandments start with gospel. What is the reason? Well, we can really break it down into two parts, and then we can see more broadly 
that those parts apply to all Ten Commandments. The reason that we should have no other gods, and in fact the reason that we should keep all Ten Commandments, is because He is Yahweh. Now we've seen that before many times in the text of Exodus. God is speaking to Moses, or God even says to say to Pharaoh, I am Yahweh. Moses says, for example, I think in chapter 6, God, the people are ready to kill me. You haven't delivered us. Why don't you help us? Yeah. Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. He gives this speech, and then he winds it up once again with the statement, I am Yahweh. Why keep the commandments? Well, the most basic reason and the reason that the commandments start with is the identity of God. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. And remember, he spoke to Moses earlier at the burning bush and said that means I am who I am. Because God is the self-existent one, because his being is what it is, because he will be what he will be, because he cannot change, he is always faithful, he is dependent on no one, therefore, he commands us. He doesn't, in other words, these are not anonymous commands. God puts his name front and center on these. We like to say, if we're told something, you have to wear a mask in here, something along those lines. The response might be, in our flesh, who says? Well, there's no question with the Ten Commandments, who says? God makes it clear right off the bat that he says. This is not promulgated with the authority of the United States government. It's promulgated with, not promulgated with the authority of Moses as tribal leader. This is promulgated with the authority of Yahweh. But of course, even before he puts his name on it, the, 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 the chapter begins with, and God spoke all these words. He said, I am Yahweh. But what's amazing even before that is that he spoke. God has revealed himself to us. We are not... We are not wondering, wandering, saying, is there direction in this world? Would somebody speak to me from on high, please? God spoke all these words. It's a basic point, but it's an incredibly important one. Our God talks to us and the gods of the nations don't talk to them power doesn't speak toys don't talk there's no such thing as a personal relationship with zeus or a hard conversation with thor these gods don't talk our god spoke all these words so why should we have no other gods How does this reason apply to the commandment? 
Well, the answer is clear. The God that we have is a better God than any possible alternative. We, are, we as Americans are not known for our propensity to immigrate, to leave our country and move somewhere else in vast numbers. The largest expat community of Americans in the world, apparently, according to the official numbers, is in Mexico. State Department counts something like 2 million Americans in Mexico. The Mexican government counts about 800,000. I don't know which of those numbers might be correct. But we tend to think, as Americans, I already live in the largest, richest, most powerful nation on the face of the earth. What could Tajikistan offer to me? What could Zimbabwe have that I don't already have? We're not all eager to move elsewhere. And God is saying to us, you don't need a different God. You will not find a better God. I am Yahweh. And the other so-called gods out there don't hold a candle to me. What could some other God offer to us? That is the question posed by the statement that God speaks when the other gods are silent. Baal doesn't speak. The things we're tempted to worship don't speak. But not only does God speak, but when he identifies himself, certainly he says, I am Yahweh, but he adds this incredible phrase, your God. He is the God who belongs. He puts that personal, possessive pronoun. He doesn't say, I am Yahweh, God of Israel, or I am Yahweh of hosts. Those phrases are used throughout the Bible, of course. But he says, I am your God. The God who is not ashamed to belong to you and me. A God who has bound himself over to us and submits to being called ours. It's mind-boggling. God binds himself to us. He doesn't belong to himself. He's content to consent to belong to you. I am Yahweh and I am your God. So he has become our God. Other religions don't speak this way. Their gods don't call themselves your God when they speak to their worshipers. But our God speaks of himself this way. So he is the Lord our God. That means that the Decalogue is rooted in his being. It's not just a function of what he's done, though it is that. But before he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, he says, I am Yahweh. I am who I am, and therefore have no other gods before me. This is why the Ten Commandments are such an important part of the biblical witness. 
they speak more directly in one sense than any other text to the nature of God's character. What is he like? He is a God who saves and a God who demands exclusive loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. That's not something that could have been otherwise. In other words, when he prefaces it by saying, I am Yahweh, here's my command, we understand that that command comes straight from his being. He couldn't say, I am Yahweh, go ahead and commit adultery. Go ahead and disrespect your your parents. Go ahead and have as many other gods as you want. The commands have to be what they are because they are not contingent on what God wanted on a particular day in 1446 BC. They are firmly fixed in the being of God. Various philosophers have debated, are are moral commands right because the gods will it? Or do the gods will them because they are right? That is, is even God himself subjected to some moral standard that's higher than himself? Neither of those options is correct. The gods don't will it because it's right, nor is it right because the gods will it. The rightness is found in the character of God. God is right. He is the moral standard. And what he wills is right. Because he is Yahweh, you should worship no other God, commit no unchaste deed, honor your parents, and all the rest of it. But not only does he root it in his being, he also roots it in his salvation. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. We've looked through the past 19 chapters at what that entailed. Israel in bondage for 430 years. Israel as slaves. Israel genocided by Pharaoh as he murders all the baby boys. Israel trying to get out and finding no success God smiting Pharaoh with plague after plague after plague until in the 10th plague, Pharaoh lets them go. Bring, God brings them through the Red Sea when Pharaoh changes his mind and then takes them straight to Mount Sinai. God saves before he commands. I've pointed it out many times. But again, Moses does not go to the burning bush in chapter 3 and have God say to him, here's 10 commandments. Take these back to the people. If you keep them well enough for long enough, I will bring you out of Egypt. That's not the bargain. God saves first when the people don't know and don't keep the Ten Commandments. And once they're saved, he says, here are Ten Commandments. Keep them. I've saved you, so now obey me. Rather, as in the natural world, parents say, I gave you life. I cared for you in utero for nine months. I feed you every day. I show you love. I take care of you. Now obey me. So God says, I've shown you love. I've delivered you. I've brought you out. Now obey me. 
That's why we shouldn't worship pleasure, power, money, fame, health, safety, security, stuff, or anything else the, the world pretends to offer us as an object of worship. Those things can't deliver from Egypt. They can't deliver from sin. So what is God's point? You know, relating to himself, he says, what I'm telling you comes right out of who I am. And to us, he says, these laws are for a free people. This is the law of liberty. You're most familiar with that concept of a law of liberty when it comes to the sports field. You, if you say, well, I can't play baseball, there's too many rules. Let's throw the rule book out. Then it no longer is possible to play baseball. The rules are what create the thing you're trying to do. If you set a basket on the ground and drop a basketball into it 18 times, you haven't won anything. So it is with us. God made us to do something. The law tells us what that something is. Obedience to the law frees us to fulfill our purpose. Israel was not free to fulfill their purpose in slaving for Pharaoh. They were made to slave to save, slave for God, to glorify and enjoy God. Pharaoh told them, you can't serve the Lord. You must serve me. God frees them and says, you will serve me, your God. Here is how. Here are the ten rules, the ten commands that describe exactly how to serve me. So freedom does not mean that your relationship to the law has been severed such that nothing is right or wrong anymore. That's not what freedom means, that there's no limits on your behavior, no rules, do whatever you want. That's not freedom. As we know, that in fact is bondage as you rapidly become more and more enslaved to more and more degrading forms of sin. That vision of freedom is a lie propagated by Satan who says, yes, libertarian freedom, the ability to do anything at any time is genuine freedom. As we could say, right, in the basketball game, genuine freedom means the ability to grab the ball and travel across the floor running with the ball hugged to your chest as many steps as you want and still score a basket at the end of that time. That's not freedom. That's cheating. So it is with the law of God. It defines our freedom. We're not in bondage to sin. We're not in bondage to our whims. We're not in bondage to the world. We're not in bondage to Pharaoh or to the one who stands behind Pharaoh, Satan. We are instead free to serve God. The law is a statement of purpose. It tells us what we're for. We are for our God, as we read in Romans, of him, through him, to him are all things. Our purpose is found in obedience to God, not in maximizing our own pleasure, in coming up with our own rules for success, in deciding what makes us happy. That's not our purpose. 
purpose is to honor and glorify the Lord. Without the rules, human life is impossible. If we don't know any of these ten, and we don't do any of these ten, we won't live long on the earth. In fact, if the people around us aren't doing them, then we will never even be born, much less live out a human life. To know God, to have one God, to worship him, honor his name, keep from coveting, that is our life and length of days, as the book of Deuteronomy says. One can think of Frankenstein's monster, created in a fit of madness by Victor Frankenstein, and then abandoned, given no law. The creature spends the rest of the book trying to figure out what to do with himself because he has been given no rules, no statement about who he is or what he's for. We have such a statement in the law of God, and it's that statement that makes us free, that makes us able to say to political tyrants, no, that's not what I'm for. I don't exist to feed your military-industrial machine or your prestige machine or whatever it is that you want me to feed. I don't exist for you, I exist for God. I'm not here to build store cities for Pharaoh. Having the law of God frees us to say no, of course, to spiritual tyrants as well, not just Satan, but to anybody in a spiritual position of power, some priest, some pastor who says, you exist for me. You're here to make me look good. You're a number for baptisms or a number for seats filled or a number for donations or any of those things. Once again, the Decalogue gives us freedom from that to say, no, I don't exist for you. I exist for God. So what's the point? Gospel precedes law. God saves, then commands. God gives the indicative where he describes what he's done and then the imperative where he tells us what we must do. That's what the ten words are about. They summarize our relationship to God, how it got started when he rescued us, and how he expects us to remain in relationship to him. The law doesn't save, but it does describe what salvation is. And so we don't want to move away from the law and say, no, the law is old, the law is not for us. The law says, when you're saved, here's ten descriptors that show exactly what you'll be like as a saved person. Here is how people delivered from Egypt live. The law tells us how we'll live in heaven. The law tells us how the Son of God lives right now at the Father's right hand. So let's pay attention to the law because it's not the words of somebody who doesn't care about us. It's the words of the God who already delivered us. We're saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the power of sin. Saved from bondage to the devil, the world, and the flesh. And now we have this charter that tells us, here's the next step. Here is how to walk out the rest of your life 
in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the perfect law of liberty. And we ask that you would help us not just to listen to it and look into it, but to continue in it. We thank you that you have brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that you have brought us out of the devil's territory in the place where we were in bondage to sin and had no choice but to sin in one way or another. We praise you, Father, for your forgiveness, for your righteousness, for your saving work, and that you don't just save us and then leave us adrift like Frankenstein's monster, but that you say to us, here is how to live as someone I've saved. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to have no other gods before you, to make no graven image, to treat your name rightly, to keep your Sabbath day, to honor our father and mother, not to kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet. Give us the grace to keep these words and to walk in the freedom that you have for us with them, we pray in the name of your beloved Son. Amen.